Well, let's go ahead and begin. Glad that you are here. Hope that you've been doing well the last uh, last two weeks. I was sorry to miss last week. I really was. Well, this is the third and final uh, lecture in this um, series on the fruit, the lamb, and the bread, a few famous food stores from Scripture, and why they matter. And what I would like to do in the time that we have is summarize what we did the first two weeks and elaborate a little bit on it, and then move into the next section, the final section for today. Really, we could sum up the final two weeks under the heading, Jesus Waits for God's Feast. And we could sum up what we're doing tonight as, Jesus is God's Feast. So let me, let me begin with a word of prayer. We're, we're really moving into um, sacred territory here, so I'd like to ask the Lord's help as, as we approach these things. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, that you do provide for all of our needs, including food, and that you have in a wonderful and a mysterious way provided most especially for our needs in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask you that as we consider that even now, that you will open our eyes and prepare our hearts and lead us to worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we can sum up the first two weeks by Jesus waits for God's feast. The two stories, the two feeding or eating stories that we covered initially were the garden and the wilderness. So we talked about Adam and Eve in the garden. We talked about Israel, the wilderness. And the point that we made in the first week very strongly was that there's a strong connection between the two. That the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, and even before that, the story of creation as well, is an anticipation of what goes on in the Exodus. So that you have a division of waters and the Spirit of God hovering over that in Genesis 1. You have a division of waters and the wind of God going over the waters in the story of the Exodus, in the division of the Red Sea, in the the appearance of dry land. You have... um, the creation of a temple. So in Genesis 1 you have luminaries which are reminiscent later of the luminaries which show up in the temple and you have an image of God, that is human beings, placed within the temple. And we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that this is true in Exodus as well, that the whole point of the Exodus, the whole point of deliverance is tabernacle construction. They were meant to be in God's presence. It's the construction of a tabernacle. So both Genesis in the story of creation in the garden and Exodus moving into the wilderness have to do with the establishment of a sanctuary. That is a place for God's presence and a place for God's people to worship Him, to obey Him, and indeed to expand the sanctuary. So there's an expectation of expansion in both cases. I'll say more about that in just a few minutes. But they began with a garden of Eden and they were meant to subdue the entire world in Genesis 1 and 2. And certainly in um, the account of the Exodus in the wilderness, there's a sense, too, that God has given them the promised land, which is to be their inheritance. That itself is only the first installment in a larger inheritance of the entire world. It is also true that in both of these stories, both in the garden and in the wilderness, there's a huge emphasis on eating, so that you have the 
provision of food, but also the prohibition against eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in um, Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis. And you also have plenty of food tests in the wilderness and the food laws for, um, for Israel as well. All of this then points to several principles uh, which I brought out in the first two lectures. One is the, the principle of provision, that God provides for his people. And in fact, as Peter Lightheart points out at the end of chapter 1, there is a provision of food. God sets a table for his people. And Peter Lightheart has, um, has a great quote on that, so I'll find here. I mentioned that uh, the first week. Um, for the Akkadians, and so now I'm thinking of the various creation stories in the ancient world, man exists to feed the gods. In the Bible, God creates man and then offers him food. In fact, God's gift of food is the climax of the six days of creation. Day six does not end with man's creation as the image of God or with God's command that Adam rule the earth, its oxen and its beast. Genesis 1 ends rather with a menu. And so you have this contrast already implied in Genesis 1 between the ancient Near Eastern stories in which humans exist to feed their gods and the God himself who, um, who graciously uh, feeds his people. And you see that, uh, as I mentioned last time, in a couple of Old Testament uh, passages as well, this sort of contrast between God and the gods. Deuteronomy 32, where it talks about God... Um, suckling Israel with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock and the fat of rams, rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grapes. So that's how God feeds his people um, in the Exodus and, and then coming into the Promised Land. But then Israel rebels, and you have a few verses later, God saying, Where are their gods? the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. So here they are busy feeding their gods. Let those gods rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. So there's that same sort of contrast between the God who provides for his people and the gods, the pagan gods who do not. Same thing in Hosea 11, where um, God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son... They kept sacrificing to the Baals, though, and burning offerings to the idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, and I bent down to them and fed them. So there's this beautiful contrast between God's provision and uh, the gods who exploit the people uh, by way of food. There's also, um, and, and this is especially in the story of Genesis, the, um, the aspect of food then bringing life. So the gods don't feed their people, they're fed by them. God provides food for his people, and this is the kind of food um, that brings life. And um, so you have, and this is here we are on the, on the outline, we're at food, wisdom, and life. That you have all of these ancient stories we mentioned last time in which... Um, there's not just regular food that brings life, there's some sort of hope of, of food that will bring immortal life. So you have, for example, Gilgamesh, remember, who goes after the uh, food for immortal malt life, and finally Utnapishtim tells him about the magical plant, and the serpent steals it from him, so no immortal life for Gilgamesh. And you remember the story, too, of Adapa, 
who um, was seeking the food of immortality and was tricked by his own god and was denied the food of immortality. So in both cases, you've got this, these stories from the pagan world which parallel what's going on in the Bible. And we mentioned the first week that there are glimmers of truth in these ancient stories, but what we have in the Bible is the truth itself, that there really is a food that leads to life. It's just not the food spoken of in those old tales. In the Garden of Eden, then, we have Adam and Eve, who also are going to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the tree of wisdom, which leads to life. So there's a tree of life as well, and a tree of wisdom there, too. There's a connection between food and life. There's also a connection between food and wisdom. I mean, it's really interesting in these old stories. Um, Adapa was offered... Um, the food of immortal life because he was wise and had lots of power. Utnapishtim, the Noah-like figure, is offered immortal life because he, he, he knows the secret of the flood which is to come. And Adam and Eve have the possibility of eating from the tree of life because there's the tree of wisdom. So there's this really close connection between the food that leads to life and wisdom in every case. Food and wisdom, food and the word of God. And I pointed out last time too that this sort of theme is really carried on. That one of the lessons that they're supposed to learn in the Old Testament in the, in the wilderness is, um, well, man shall not live by bread alone but by yeah, every word that proceeds um, from the mouth of God. So there's this constant connection of food and wisdom. And we mentioned last time some, some passages in which you see that. Um, I like the scripture about your word is like honey. Yeah, 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 exactly right. Yeah, so you have places in the Psalms too, where you thinking of the Psalms where where God's word is actually compared to honey. That's that's that, yeah, that's that's excellent. And we mentioned some other passages last time too, where you had this connection between food in the wilderness and the commands and the instructions of God. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, we'll see more about these connections between food and wisdom and life. Um, when we get to the next section. Well, hello, Krasan. Hello, David. Hey, glad you're here. The more, the merrier. Let's see, do you each have a pack there? You have one? Okay, good. Okay, I'm on the first part. Of, the first part of the outline here is Jesus waits for God's feast. That's essentially a summation of what we did the first two weeks. And the second part is Jesus is God's feast, and that's a summation. That's what we'll do today. So we're under we're under now um, the heading delay. God provides for His people, but the major point that we made, even at the, at the end of the first time, is that He provides, but there's also an aspect of delay. He provides food, but the final feast is yet to come, and it's a question of patient waiting. And you see this in lots of ways, not just with the food. I mentioned last time that you have the whole notion of a partial inheritance. They're in the garden, but they're supposed to inherit the whole world. The... Um, the whole notion of the Sabbath week. They're working, but at some point they're going to enter into God's rest. They haven't yet entered into God's rest, but they will. So there's something out there waiting for them. They're naked, and yet they're meant to be clothed at some point. Again, there's a sense of incompletion. 
And as I said, there's a food prohibition, but they're at some point meant to take partake of the food and it will become a feast. And indeed, that's what we see as, as the Bible goes on. You can't have the food. You can't have the food. Not in the garden. Not in the wilderness. Not even during most of the Old Testament where there were lots of food laws. And then by the time you get to the New Testament, those food laws are abrogated. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. And um, now you are allowed to partake. So there's a strong notion of delay, that is, of waiting for God's final provision um, in the garden. Also in the wilderness, obviously they're in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, which is really to teach them the lesson that apparently Adam and Eve did not learn, which is to worship God. Can you learn to worship God in the tabernacle, which is constructed during the period of the wilderness, uh, before you come into the promised land and enter into the full inheritance and into the full rulership of God, in God's kingdom. So there's a period of waiting in the garden. There's a period of waiting in the wilderness. And indeed, um, there's a kind of unfolding of God's purpose and plans. This past, the past week or two, I was, I've been reading a book by Leon Cass called The Hungry Soul, which... Um, I don't agree with in every respect, but it's recommended in many, many respects. It's a very interesting book. The Hungry Soul, Eating and the Perfecting of Our Nature. Leanne Cass is writing from a Jewish perspective, and so I'll indicate some ways in which I disagree with him as we go along. But he's remarkably insightful um, in so many different ways. And one of the things that he points out is that even with respect to food, there's this sort of unfolding, this sort of um, moving through various stages uh, with respect to um, what, what food people were allowed to eat or even um, were able to eat. He says that, generally speaking, he says, the Bible seems to agree with Aristotle that the first reason for dietary laws is the need to restrain, moderate, and define the naturally unrestrained and moderate and boundless appetites of human beings. Appetites that are by no means restricted to the desires for food, but for which the problem of eating is somehow emblematic. So food stands for this larger longing and desire for things which um, may well go um, well beyond their bounds. And then he says that in the Garden of Eden, you have this movement that begins with eating fruit. Well, I mean, obviously fruit is something that you can just pick off a tree. There's no work involved in that. So it begins with fruit in the Garden of Eden. So he says... At the beginning, in the bountiful Garden of Eden, the man was a fruit eater, allowed to eat of every tree of the garden save one. Once um, they're expelled from the garden, what's the shift? What kind of food does it mention next? Do you remember? It's mentioned in connection with the curse, but I don't think that's its only connection. You have to toil for your bread. Yeah, toil for your bread. Exactly right. The expulsion from the garden, Cass says, is coupled with a shift from fruit to bread. Now, what's the difference between fruit and bread in, um, in human production and effort? Preparation time. Yeah, there's a whole lot more preparation time. You've got to find some wheat. Probably you have to grow the wheat, and then you have to process it, and it's a very laborious process. Um, so the expulsion from the garden is coupled with a shift from fruit, fruit to bread, the distinctly human food. So animals don't eat uh, bread, but they do eat fruit. And marks the next major step toward humanization through civilization. Men turn from gathering naturally available food, that is fruits, to toilsome cultivation of grain itself in need of artful transformation before it becomes edible as bread. 
Now, I, I think the trajectory that he's tracing, I'm not sure he puts it in these terms, but I'm sure he would agree, is sort of that general uh, movement from the garden to the city, from an uncivilized state, a natural state, to civilization. Indeed, that is the movement from Genesis 1, which finds Adam and Eve, human beings, in the garden, to the end of Revelation, which finds human beings with a city coming down from heaven. The idea being that God always meant for there to be culture, always meant for there to be the development of culture. Um, and something like the emergence of bread was always intended, although in this case it's connected with, uh, very closely with the fall. So you move from bread to fruit. The next, um, the next, mar- the next uh, stage of civilization. And then um, what stage is after that? Do you remember? And this is, I don't know, Genesis 8, 9... Yeah, exactly. So he points out the next and crucial stage just after the flood is marked by the first law for all mankind and the first covenant between God and man through Noah. The first law of the first law sanctions for the first time man's eating of all animal flesh, but at the same time prohibits the eating of blood, which is the life. Now, Cass's own explanation of why this happens is eminently unsatisfying to me. He... um, he surmises, as a first surmise, he goes beyond this later, a few pages later, we surmise that God was willing to tolerate meat eating in the hope that man's ferocity would thereby be sated, that murder might become less likely if human bloodlust could be satisfied by meat. Okay, um, so, so it becomes a concession. Uh, the eating of meat becomes uh, only a concession. And then he does say, several pages later, about ten pages later, well, maybe it shouldn't be seen as merely concessive, but that um, human beings, in order to mark their self-conscious separation from the animals, undertake to eat them. To acknowledge his own godlikeness, man accepts the prohibition of uh, homicide. So I can eat them because I'm fundamentally different from them and above them, but I can't kill other human beings because they are just like me, and more than that, they're just like God because they're created in the image of God. So that this eating of meat, he suggests... Maybe a kind of separation from the animals and a recognition of godlikeness among you and your fellow human beings. Eating meat may indeed be a part, part and parcel, albeit a worrisome one, of our humanization. There may be some elements of truth to all of that, but I think it goes much further than that, as we'll see when we get to um, um, Jesus, the Word who becomes flesh. And the notion of Jesus being the feast. I think there's a much deeper truth that Leon Cass doesn't get at. But I think it's as good as far as it goes. He's tracing this sort of movement from the garden to the city in its various stages and, and, and brings out that the Bible seems to be doing something like that. Cass also points out, and now I'm on the, the, the stage of separation here, that food laws also mark um, separation. And this seems kind of obvious if you think about it. I mean, what was the point of, uh, especially the food laws with Israel? Why did you have all of these food laws which prohibited all kinds of meat eating? That was the only thing that was prohibited, it's different kinds of meat. Why all these prohibitions on meat eating? Well, to separate the Jews from everybody else, because everybody else was allowed to eat all this stuff, right? 
So we're only allowed, we're only allowed to have a particular kind of diet, and that sort of separates us from all the other people. You've got the food laws, you've got circumcision, you've got the Sabbath commands. These sort of set the Jews apart from everybody else. And so Leon Cass says, there is much to be said for the view. Uh, favored by Maimonides and others, that the laws are meant solely to separate the children of Israel from the Egyptians behind and the Canaanites before. Peoples whose practice, people whose practices, especially in sexual matters, and pagan beliefs are from God's point of view abominable. Whatever the Egyptians eat, let that be unclean to you, lest you stray too easily into their ways. And so he suggests that the food laws are simply a ways of making distinctions and separations. So Cass goes on to say that God seems to say to the creature made in his image, you should make distinctions because I made distinctions, because I made the separations that created the world, because I also separated separated you from the peoples that know me, that know me not, that you should be mine in holiness, so you should make and honor these separations in pursuit of holiness, of more perfect God-likeness. And I think that's certainly true, that food, the food laws do separate them. And yet, the New Testament writers, which Leon Cass is not concerned with, the New Testament writers are also impressed with the way in which these separations have been overcome and the food laws have been abolished. And so it points then to the ways in which separation is merely a prelude to union or communion. So I talked about you know work leading to rest, and nakedness leading to clothing, and food leading to a feast, and the Garden of Eden leading to dominion over the entire world. This would be another one of those um, series. In this case, it would be, yes, there's a separation, but it's temporary, because the separation itself was always meant to lead to a larger union and communion. So that which is set up in the Old Testament points beyond itself to a a more complete and consummate state. That then leads us to the one meal, the one act of eating, that most especially expresses our communion with the Lord. That is communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. So that brings us to the second part of the outline. And this is what I want to do. You know, communion is itself, the Lord's Supper is a great mystery. So I don't, I'm not going to even pretend like I'm, I'm somehow dispensing with the mystery. But there are fascinating things with respect to the Lord's Supper. It's picking up on so many things from the Old Testament. So I want to talk about two of those without even pretending to exhaust it. When we're talking about Jesus being God's feast, not only Jesus waiting for God's feast... Um, as the one who um, was the true Israel and the true, the true Adam, the one who was willing to wait for God's feast to come and brought in the proper inheritance. When we talk about Jesus being God's feast, I'd like to t- talk about him being the wisdom made flesh and about his being the sacrificial lamb. Those are the two elements. Okay, with respect to Jesus being the wisdom made flesh, I've got a handout here that says wisdom made flesh. This is where I'm heading. I'm heading to John. 
um, in John's account of Jesus being the um, giving his flesh for us to eat. But I want to back up into the Old Testament and actually into other, some other Jewish literature as well and just consider a particular theme that's really important that is expressed among other places in Proverbs 9. So I'm not going to read the entire passage, but basically Proverbs 9 has this picture of lady wisdom. It's the wisdom of God personified as a woman. She's built her house. It has seven pillars. And in Proverbs 9, she's laying a great feast. So it talks about her mixing her wine and setting her table and calling all the people into the feast. Reminds a little bit of some of the parables of Jesus, calling everyone into the feast. And she says in verse 5, Come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. So once again, here's an invitation to food, an invitation to a feast, and it's very closely connected to the word and wisdom of God, to instruction, which we saw uh, last time as well. And then it goes on to talk about um, the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom, the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is what you get if you come to woman wisdom, is that kind of wisdom. And woman wisdom is contrasted in this passage with what character? Down in appropriately uh, numbered verse 13. Yeah, so you've got woman wisdom on the one side who is inviting everyone to this luscious feast which will help them to grow in wisdom. Here is indeed the food of wisdom. And then on the other hand, you have the woman folly, who comes now as a kind of um, seductive prostitute, who doesn't know anything, and she's trying to seduce the young men that go by, and also inviting them to a kind of illicit feast. So you have down in verse 17, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But this way doesn't lead to life, it leads to death. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So there's wisdom and food, once again connected in Proverbs 9. This is picked up later on in a book called Sirach. I have that there. It's not in our Protestant Bibles. It is in Roman Catholic Bibles. And in any case, it's important for understanding the background of the New Testament. The uh, New Testament writers would have been familiar with this work, and sometimes they allude to it. And it's, it's pretty important in that respect. The same thing, sort of thing is going on here. You have, in Sirach 24, wisdom personified. So this is woman wisdom again, lady wisdom. And she's, she's speaking and telling a story. And she tells a story which seems to begin either in creation or in the Exodus or both. Uh, this is wisdom sitting in a cloud. It could be the cloud of the sort of um, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters in Genesis 1. It could be the pillar of cloud in the Exodus. It may be both. But anyway, this is the wisdom of God that has sway over all the nations. But wisdom is actually seeking to go live someplace. So look down in verse 7. Among all these nations, I saw a resting place. In whose territory should I, that is wisdom, abide? Where should I live? Then the creator of all things gave me a command, and my creator chose the place for my tent. Notice the tent language there. So she's going to live in a tent. Wisdom in a tent. The wisdom of God in a tent. What does that remind you of? Exactly right. It reminds you of the law, the wisdom of God, which was in the tabernacle. That's exactly right, the Ten Commandments. That would be the very wisdom of God that dwelt in a tabernacle. 
So the creator of all things gave me a command, and my creator chose the place for my tent. He said, make your dwelling in Jacob, and in Israel receive your inheritance. And so down in verse 10, in the holy tent I ministered before him, and so I was established in Zion, thus in the beloved city, Jerusalem. He gave me a resting place, and in Jerusalem was my domain. So the idea is this. Out of all the nations of the world, wisdom most specifically dwells in Jerusalem, in the temple. Now, I mean, all the nations have a kind of wisdom, but the true wisdom from God has been given to Jerusalem. She has a tent, a dwelling place there. And we know that it's we know that it's the law because it says down in verse twenty three, all this is the book of the covenant of the Most High God, the law that Moses commanded us as an inheritance for the congregations of Jacob. So when woman wisdom comes to live among Israel, she lives in a tent. That's the law dwelling in the tabernacle. Now what's really interesting with this is it's not content to leave it as woman wisdom living in a tent. If you look in verses 12 and following, it now begins to describe, once again, wisdom as food. So it talks about wisdom growing tall like a palm tree in verse 14, and rose bushes, and various fragrant and blooming flowers in verse 15. And then in verse 17, like the vine, I bud forth delights. This is a description of wisdom. And my blossoms become glorious and abundant fruit. Come to me, you who desire me, and eat your fill of my fruits. So this is taking the picture in Proverbs 9 to a new level. Now this just isn't woman wisdom providing a feast. This is woman wisdom as the feast. Or um, this, is, this is wisdom showing up as a tree of wisdom. Think about, think about the connections back to Genesis um, 3, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now here's, here's wisdom pictured as a tree. For the memory of me is sweeter than honey, and the possession of me is sweeter than the honeycomb. Those who eat of me will hunger for more, and those who drink of me will thirst for more. Now in a few minutes we're going to get to John 6, but already begin putting your minds forward to John 6 when when Jesus um, tells the people that they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. There was already something like that in the Jewish tradition where a figure said to people, come and eat and drink of me. So when Jesus is saying, eat and drink of me, Some of the people might have had their minds going back to this particular passage where wisdom is speaking. Those who eat of me will hunger for more, and those who drink of me will thirst for more. Whoever obeys me will not be put to shame, and those who work with me will not sin. And then again, this identifies this as the law. So the law is a kind of food that makes you hungrier. It's a kind of drink that makes you thirstier. It's a contrast, though. Jesus said, those who eat of me. It is. It's a fascinating contrast. And it makes you think, too. That's a great point because it makes you think, too, that Jesus is intentionally comparing and contrasting himself with the wisdom figure. I am like wisdom, uh, this wisdom figure that you're familiar with, but I am greater than this wisdom because that wisdom could never fill you, but I can. Yeah, he was like the completion of Exactly right. And that's the point, I think, um, that, that John is actually making in his gospel. So that's exactly right. Yeah, great. 
Okay, with that background in mind, thinking of Proverbs, thinking of uh, Sirach, and there are other places as well, which I won't go over. Now we can read John, John 1 and 2 and 6. Because what we have here is a picture of the Word made flesh. The tabernacling of God's Word among His people, but more than that. It's not just um, the Word becoming a man, it is also the Word becoming a meal, as we shall see. So, look in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes on to talk about creation being created through this Word. And by the way, though we haven't looked at that, that's very typical of the Old Testament language and the um, Jewish language with respect to wisdom. God created everything through His Word, through His, by His wisdom. So already at the very beginning, Jesus is described as the Word or wisdom of God. So what is God's Word? What is God's wisdom? Already from the beginning, it's not finally the law. It's not the Ten Commandments that are finally the Word of God, climactically the Word of God. It's Jesus who is the Word and the wisdom of God. And then skipping down to uh, verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Anybody who knows that wisdom literature of the first century is going to be thinking of wisdom right away. Oh, that person of wisdom really was a person. It's not just a personification, it really is a person. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now think about the contrast with Sirach. In Sirach, wisdom looks all over the world for a place to dwell. A place to pitch her tent. And she finds Israel, and she lives there. Okay, now, that's the wisdom of God as summed up in the law. That is, um, the Ten Commandments, the commandments of God. What about this expression of God's wisdom? Does it find such a a good reception? here's Here's an element of contrast as well. This time, wisdom came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. So before, the people had received the law. In this case, the people did not receive Jesus, who was the fulfillment of the law. But all who did receive it and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you know what the Greek word for um, dwelt is? It's a word for tabernacle or tent. It's related to skene. You know, I looked in the translations. Um, I've got some software and I can pull up about 10 or 20 translations at once. And I thought, surely there's a translation that has and tabernacled among us. There is. It's from the mid-1800s. It's unbelievable. It's, it, everything else will have dwelt or lived or something like that. And then it'll have a little note saying, and this word has to do with tenting and being in a tent or tabernacling. I mean, the best translation there would be the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's the whole point. Is that what we have now here is the new temple or tabernacle of God's presence. Think all the way back to Genesis and to Exodus, where the whole point is the tabernacled presence of God. It's finally been fulfilled, and it's been fulfilled in Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son. And then it makes it clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
So no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him um, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So you want to know what the true word and wisdom of God is, the true embodiment of God, it would be Jesus. So John begins, the Gospel of John begins with this story. As if to say, hey, you know that, ta- that tabernacle in the temple in the Old Testament? That was just an anticipation of the true temple and the tabernacle of God. Now, think back to the Old Testament story. What happened to both the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament? The tabernacle at Shiloh and the temple in Jerusalem. What happened to both of them? Yeah, they were destroyed. Uh, and in both cases, they actually were restored to some extent. You had the restoration of the tabernacle after Shiloh, and you had the restoration of the temple, although in some ways that was just disappointing at the end of the Old Testament. The same sort of storyline now applies to Jesus. He too is the tabernacle or the temple that will be torn down and built back up. And that's the point that is made in the very next chapter in John 2. Where he goes in, and, and I think this is the reason why John puts the story of the, ta- the, the temple first. In the, in, the other, in the other three Gospels, it's at the end of his ministry. And John puts it right at the very beginning of the ministry, and I think it's because he wants to identify Jesus as the one who is the true temple, right along with what he was doing at the beginning in John 1. So he goes in and he cleanses the temple. And the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? That's verse 18. And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is the true tabernacle of God, the true temple of God which like the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament is destroyed and this is the true promised restoration of the temple and tabernacle of God. You have Old Testament prophecies that point to a restoration of the tabernacle or temple. This is the true restoration. It comes it comes true in his resurrection. Okay. With all that in mind, this whole notion of the Word becoming flesh as the tabernacling of the Word among us, um, John doesn't leave it there. Just like in the Old Testament wisdom literature, the wisdom of God dwelt in a tabernacle, but the wisdom of of God was also food. Same thing is true in John. The wisdom of God tabernacles among us, but as in Sirach 24, the wisdom of God becomes food for us. And that becomes clear in in John 6. So Jesus is made a man, but Jesus is also made a meal. And when it talks about the word becoming flesh, sometimes we focus completely on the embodiment aspect. But there's also... um, an aspect of, of eating involved as well. I can't think of the word that I want for that. What would it be? You've got embodiment, and there's a, the idea of preparation for a meal. If you think of the word, I've been th- thinking all afternoon about that. But it's the whole notion of becoming a meal. And he not, not only becomes a man, he becomes a meal here. And that's what you see in John 6. Uh, he's just uh, had the miracle of the loaves, so he's fed them. And uh, these Jews in complete accord with all of their ancestors 
are seeking the wrong kind of food. And so Jesus has to correct them. So he says, do not labor, in verse 27, he says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which which the Son of Man will give to you. Okay, once again, there's that connection between food and life, and seek the right kind of food that leads to life. And then Jesus goes on to identify himself as the one who is that true bread from heaven. He says in verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. And here's here's what you were thinking of. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus is the food from God who um, takes away one's hunger and thirst. And and surely this must be understood against uh, the wisdom tradition. The wisdom of God who also was given but made you hungrier and made you thirstier. I'm going to skip down to verse uh, 51. Where Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Boy, talk about hearkening back to the Old Testament stories. I mean, you want the food that endures to eternal life. Gilgamesh wanted it, and Adapa wanted it, and Adam and Eve wanted it. And here it is. It is identified. And it's not um, a tree. It's not fruit. It's... um, bread for the moment and it's bread that leads to life but it's bread that's becoming meat which is very interesting even in Sirach when it's talking about wisdom wisdom is providing fruit and the man in the wilderness is bread but now Jesus says and this is verse 53 I'm the bread sorry 51 I'm the living bread that came down from heaven if anyone eats of this bread he will live forever And, and watch this move And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So it takes it one step beyond the fruit that's in the Garden of Eden, a step beyond the fruit which wisdom provides in Sirach 24, a step beyond the bread in the wilderness, because he now identifies himself as the bread from heaven, which is ironically meat. A bread which is meat. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the food that leads to life is meat. It's not fruit, and it's not bread. It's meat. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. I mean, he really gets it across graphically because only meat has blood in it, right? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This is Jesus, I think, taking a tradition, a story that they would have been really familiar with, the story of wisdom coming down from heaven and feeding God's people in the way that they should be fed and transforming it. 
And why do, you, why do you think he transforms it from bread to meat? I mean, why does he do this? Why does he, why does he cast himself now as the true wisdom and word of God that is made flesh, not just for the sake of tabernacling among us, but for the sake of feeding us? Why does he move to flesh in this case? And this is where I think it goes beyond Leon Cass and his sort of saying, well, it's a concession to human violence. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting. I think he's taken this whole wisdom tradition and the wisdom in the tabernacle and saying this is a wisdom and a word that is sacrificed. So he's bringing the whole idea of sacrifice and death and violence. It's um, a wisdom which is a sacrificial lamb. It's in the tabernacle, but is a, a sacrificed wisdom and a sacrificed word. So I think John's understanding of Jesus being made flesh is very interesting. It has to do with his, the fact that he's the tabernacle of God, but it also has to do with the fact that he's the sacrificial lamb. He is both the tent and the tabernacle and the lamb that is sacrificed within the tent and the tabernacle. It is both the tent and the tabernacle that, in which the word dwells and it is the sacrifice of that very word. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And then he goes on to say that um, to identify um, the spirit and the life that comes from his flesh as, as with his words. Uh, this is down in 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And when Jesus says to the twelve, do you want to leave me as well? Because everybody was abandoning him. Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's very interesting. This is the word of God speaking words to them that lead to eternal life. But it is the sacrificed word of God. It is the word of God in a sacrificial mode speaking words of life to them. So you don't come by life simply by way of the word of God. It's that you come to life by way of the sacrificed word and wisdom of God. And so it's um, a retelling of the story of wisdom along the lines of the sacrifice to Jesus. It's beautiful. Disturbing, but beautiful. What do you think? Let me stop and pause for any questions or comments before I move on to thinking a little bit more about the sacrificial lamb aspect. It seems, but I want to see um, if there are any questions about this line of development in John that I've, I've tried to explicate. Where I'm suggesting that he's bringing together with respect to Jesus what Sirach does with respect to Lady Wisdom in Sirach 24. The tabernacling and the eating, but now with a sacrificial element that's that's true to the way in which life actually comes. This may be a little bit of a tangent, so you can not answer if you don't want to. But in John, when he does all this, and then his disciples say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Are they reacting to it literally? Is that why it's offensive? Or why is, it a, why is that a hard saying? I'm guess- Those of us who are steeped in the New Testament, you know, it's like, oh yeah, of course, but... I'm guessing that's the case. I'm guessing that they... I mean, it would, this, this, would have been so, this would have been difficult on so many levels. First of all, for him to identify himself with wisdom, that alone would be um, disturbing, to say the least, almost blasphemous. Identifying himself with the word and wisdom of God and setting himself above the law. 
I mean, that's already disturbing. And then to take that kind of language and add this sacrificial element to it, which almost sounds like some sort of Greek cult or something, maybe a mystery cult, you know, or something. I'm sure that they were, I can't imagine anything, but that they were completely confused by what all this meant. And really, I mean, it seems to me that it only ultimately comes clear in his, well, in the, in the institution of the Lord's Supper and the fulfillment of that in his death and resurrection. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, meat and blood, and they walk between it, and they had great, you know, it's really big deal for them. Oh yeah, that's what they were used to for sacrifice. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, this is this is disturbing at a lot of levels. That's right. Okay, let's talk about uh, Jesus not only being the wis- uh, not only being wisdom made flesh, being made a man, and being made a we- uh, a meal um, in his enfleshment, in, in his incarnation. But also Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. Leon Cass says that there's a, the great paradox of eating is that, uh, namely, to uh, preserve their life in form, living forms necessarily destroy life in form. When you eat, it involves the destruction of life, inevitably, plant life at the very least, and oftentimes animal life. So, if it's animal life, there's, a, there's some sort of slaughter involved beforehand, which were, it's easy for us to forget, but it was less easy for them to forget in the ancient world because those two things were together so closely. But you have to kill something in order to eat it, and in the very act of eating, when you chew something up, you are further destroying it and incorporating it into yourself. So you end up with this, this paradox... Where eating marks life and health and celebration, you fast when you're mourning, you eat when you're celebrating, and yet at the same time eating necessarily inevitably involves death and destruction, the prior death of plant or animal life, and it's complete and utter destruction in the process of eating. As you chew it up, swallow it, and it's digested and it becomes um, a part of you. And this is especially true with respect to animals, right? Where you actually have to kill an animal and then you eat it. So this paradox of eating comes to a particular point with respect to, um, with respect to animals. And it's been suggested that in the ancient world... They may have understood this connection a little bit better than we do. I mean, clearly you have plenty of places in the Bible in the ancient world where uh, if you eat together, it's a mark of celebration. So you get dressed up and you go have a feast and that's celebrating. There are also plenty of other examples where eating together uh, creates a kind of bond or relationship. So if you eat with somebody and then later betray them, such as Judas did, it is a real betrayal because the act of eating together implies a kind of mutual loyalty, commitment, amity, friendship... Uh, that's the idea. So eating creates this kind of bond as well. And in fact, there seems to be some evidence in the Bible and in the ancient Near East that eating it, it's, itself could establish a kind of uh, covenant. That, um, well, one thinks, for example, of the uh, Gibeonites in um, Joshua 9. Anybody remember the story of the Gibeonites? Where they come from a long distance away and they've got the old meat and the old bread um, and they say, oh, we're from so far away and actually they were just, you know, right around the corner. 
and they make a covenant with Israel to be allies. And then you know the Israelites realize that they've been fooled, and now the very people that they were supposed to um, that were supposed to be objects of holy war now actually have to be their allies. So they made them you know water carriers and forever. What's that? One wonders if they put new wine into the old wine skin. Yeah. Well, you know the 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 the, the question that people raises it, it points to how strongly um, sharing a meal, which seems to have been what happened, could establish a relationship, even if it was by, by way of deception. And there's actually a story about um, a 19th century. I think he was an Englishman who um, traveled around the Middle East, and if he was afraid of a particular Arab, he would go into his tent and steal some food, and thereby establish a bond. So even by deception, the very act of eating someone else's food was understood to establish some sort of relationship and be, you would then be under that person's um, protection. So there's, there's, a, there's powerful symbolism in, in eating a meal together. Um, it's celebration, it's commitment, it's um, some, even, even a covenantal uh, bond as well. That's the positive side, the more or less positive side. It establishes this very strong bond between human beings, this eating together. But because of what precedes the eating, that is the slaughter and the sacrifice, and what's involved perhaps in eating itself, there's the flip side of the coin, which is sacrifice comes before eating. And it has been suggested that perhaps in the ancient world they understood that. That if you ate something, that to share a meal together was to remind you of this, this feasting and this bond that's being created. But it also reminded you of what would happen to you if you broke your, um, your pledge. If you broke your oath. You would actually become like the animals that are being destroyed in the process of eating. So the eating can become an expression of a covenantal curse in the ancient world, and specifically in the um, Old Testament. So look, if you would, on this sheet that I have entitled The Sacrificial Lamb. I'm going to just walk through some of the evidence. This is evidence from the Bible. There's also evidence from the ancient world generally. Genesis 15 is an important passage. This is when God makes those promises to Abram that he will have many descendants and that he will inherit the land. And there's that very famous passage where Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So I'm picking it up in verse 7 right after that verse. And God promises now that he'll give him the whole land to possess. And Abram says, well, how am I going to know that? So God now makes a covenant. In the Hebrew, that's cutting a covenant. You'll see the cutting involved here. And it's very strange the way that he does it. Um, There's a heifer, there's a female goat, there's a ram, there's a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And they are cut in half. And there's a kind of bloody path between them. Except for the birds that were not cut in half. And then in verse 11, it says, When birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And then when the sun was coming down, the Lord says to Abram, sort of repeats the promise that after a long period of waiting, there's the period of waiting again, that eventually he will inherit the land. And at the end of that promise, in verse 17, there's a representation of God. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passes between the pieces. And and God promises him again the possession of the land. Now what does this mean? What does it mean for a covenantal party, in this case God, to pass through these divided carcasses, these bloody dead carcasses. 
Well, it's invoking a curse upon yourself. It's, it's as if to say, if I don't keep my promise, may what has happened to these animals actually happen to me. That's the idea. And that's pretty clear from the next passage I have there, Jeremiah 34, where you had these, it's a terrible story, these uh, people in Israel who got worried when um, the Babylonians came and surrounded the city. So they said, oh Lord, what should we do? And he said, well, you know, let let go all of your slaves. Free your slaves, your illicit slaves. And so they freed their slaves and the, the Babylonians left they're like, oh, okay, crisis over. And they took all their slaves back. And this made God very angry, ticked off Jeremiah. And so he said to them in verse 18, The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me. So apparently when they let the, the slaves go free, they walked the bloody path. I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. Verse 20, And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. So, when one eats, and when one eats animals in particular, it can remind you of sacrifice and slaughter and can remind you of a covenant, it can actually act as a covenantal curse. You might actually become like those animals prior then to the, the celebration that follows. This seems to be this sort of double element, the aspect of covenantal curse from the sacrifice of animals and, and the, the way in which they function as food. And the more positive element is, is, seems to be going on in Exodus 12, and this is the story of the Exodus. So we talked a lot about the Exodus in the wilderness, and this is the, the account of the Passover. So what do they do when uh, God's um, angel is passing over? Well, they kill some lambs. This is verse 6. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night. Roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. So the sacrifice followed by eating. And that act of eating the Passover becomes that which identifies the people of Israel as the people of Israel. But that... Um, act of identifying them as the community of God is preceded by sacrifice. Similar sort of uh, connection seems to be seen in Exodus 18. This is Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law, comes, meets up with Moses, is thrilled at all that's happening. And in verse 12, it says, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. So there's the aspect of burnt offering and sacrifice. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And here that word for bread is probably meant just to be food. Sometimes food was um, used to refer to bread. I mean, bread was used to refer more generally to food. That's almost certainly what's going on here. If you read, uh, well, notes, for example, and some of the Bibles, Bible translations will say what they ate was actually the burnt offering. And I think that's the case. So they sacrifice, and then they eat together before God. Same thing in Exodus 24. And this is a very important passage because this actually points forward to the the Lord's Supper. So Moses is writing down the words of the Lord. 
And then in verse 5, he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. He takes the blood, puts it in basins, throws the blood against the altar, takes the book of the covenant, reads it in the hearing of the people, and then they promise to be obedient, the people do. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. So this is actually the sacrifice that establishes the old covenant. It's the blood of the covenant. There's the sacrifice, and that sacrifice that establishes the old covenant is then followed immediately by a meal, a sacrificial meal. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Sacrifice and then a meal in God's presence. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And they beheld God and ate and drank. It's astounding. Sacrifice followed by a covenantal meal. This is clearly a covenantal meal in this case. But the covenantal meal, which provides a relation, establishes the relationship between God and the people, is preceded by sacrifice. And it is this passage in Exodus 24 that Paul, um, that rather Jesus quotes um, in the institution of the Lord's Supper in Mark 14 and the parallels in Luke and Matthew. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. This is the Passover meal, and he's about to transform it. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. So now we see what um, happening in the Synoptic Gospels would also happen in John. In John, you don't have the, um, the Lord's Supper. You, had John, you have John 6. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have the Lord's Supper. And so the bread becomes flesh. And it's, it's clearly the flesh that, um, the sacrificial flesh that, that, that institutes and inaugurates the covenant. Take, this is my body, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank of it, and he said, This is the blood of the covenant, quoting from Exodus 24, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The feast, pointing to the feast. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus here then becomes the Passover lamb. And what we see in, in each of these cases is this, is this movement from sacrifice um, to communion. Um, the sacrifice of Jesus then becomes the possibility for communion. So that larger movement that I was talking about where food begins, there's a prohibition on food and it establishes a kind of separation. And the separation that is meant to lead toward union and communion. What becomes clear in both John and the Synoptic Gospels is that food is not the fruit of the tree in the Garden of Eden, and it's not the bread from heaven um, in the wilderness. Um, It is Jesus insofar as he's the wisdom of God, but it is Jesus more especially as the sacrificial lamb of God. And so you have the movement from fruit to bread to meat precisely because Jesus has to be sacrificed and there has to be a sacrifice that leads to the meal and that's why meat in this case is necessary it's why flesh is necessary because only flesh requires a prior sacrifice only flesh requires a prior slaughter so the elements of eating that is fruit or bread um, 
now become the flesh of Jesus. And you, ha- you see that very transformation happening even in the Lord's Supper. Because only blood is acceptable, right? Yeah, that's right. Because only blood is... And, and he brings, so he brings in the sacrificial element. And so that movement, you know, we saw, we've seen in the garden the fruit, we've seen in the wilderness the bread. I mean, really, this, if I do the, teach this again, I'm going to retitle it, The Fruit, the Bread, and the Lamb. Because really, there actually is a progression from fruit to bread and to lamb, each one sort of encompassing what happens before, making clear that ultimately, the food that endures to eternal life, the Word that comes to us and brings eternal life, is ultimately the sacrificed Lamb of God, the sacrificed Word and Wisdom of God. And in that case, only meat will do. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like uh, Proverbs 9-2, where wisdom, she's slaughtered her beast since he's mixed her wine. It's flesh and wine, but foolishness is water and bread. It's... That's interesting. I hadn't even noticed that. So you've got, and you've got that's that's a clear slaughtering the beast, which which is preparation for the meal. And then, but in the case of folly, it's just bread. It's bread and water. It's bread and water, and you've got water and bread eaten in secret. This, that's very interesting because what that means is that the the meal that wisdom ultimately prepares is 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 a, is a meal of um, the body and the wine. The the yeah. Uh, the body in the cup. Do you think that's sort of talking about the, the richness of what wisdom offers versus the meager yeah. offerings? Oh, I think so. I mean, I think that's what's going on, you know, in its original context. But, I mean, in light of what happens in Christ, where he applies the wisdom tradition to himself and says, that bread is my body, um, there's a new significance, I think, to that passage. Yeah. This, this notion of sacrifice leading to communion and union is uh, clear in 1 Corinthians 10. When uh, Paul says, uh, My beloved, free, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So it's interesting. I mean, he clearly understands communion as pointing to the union of God's people. And yet he sees prior to that meal that brings people together, that brings even Jews and Gentiles together, he sees the, the, uh, the sacrificial element. There's, a, there's an inherent sacrificial element to any kind of sacred meal. And it can, it, can go, it can go in a good direction or a bad direction. So consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? The food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. So there's this... There's an element of participation with the Lord or with demons, certainly within, within the larger people of God, if you're Christians. But there's an element of sacrifice as well. The sacred meal is a sacrificial meal. And that's the significance, uh, then, of the Eucharist.
And then in 1 Corinthians 11, so a chapter later, uh, after speaking of something else for a little while, he comes back to the practice of the Lord's Supper. And he's distressed at the way in which they practice the Lord's Supper precisely because they're doing it in a very divisive way, a way that leads to all kinds of divisions. Uh, When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating one goes ahead with his own meal, one gets hungry, another gets drunk. Paul's appalled uh, by all of this. And so then he goes and talks about the institution of the Lord's Supper in language which is very close to the Gospel of Luke. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is interesting because Paul clearly sees the, the binding communal element to the Lord's Supper, which they're betraying by their divisions when they actually practice the Lord's Supper, But he sees the flip side as well. If there's a sacrifice before the meal, if there's the sacrifice of Christ before the meal, so the very import of the meal is proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Because when you eat the sacraments, you're reminding yourself of the death of Christ, even as you anticipate the final feast. You also are potentially calling upon yourself a covenantal curse. There's a positive element to the Lord's Supper, but there's a negative element as well. And you're supposed to be reminded of both of those. So if you eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, then you're guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So instead of um, reminding yourself of the feast to come, you simply um, participate in the judgment of God that, um, that God visited upon Jesus. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So, my brothers, he says in verse 33, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And I love that, because it's a reminder that even though um, the food laws have been dispensed with and even though we already are sharing in a meal that is an anticipation of the final kingdom, there's still this element of waiting and that you can even honor that waiting within the church services. You're waiting for each other. And you can do it in homes as well. One of the things that we do in the Wilder family is we, we just, you know, and lots of people do this, I'm sure, is you just, you know, you, you put out the meal and you just wait for everybody to have their plate. And then in our, in our house we say, eight smokalik. We've already said the prayer, you know, and then we, then we put around the food, and then we say, eight smoklik, which is Dutch for bon appetit, and then we're allowed to eat. So there's a kind of waiting for each other before you start eating, which is honored more in the breach than in the observance with our kids a lot of times, but still, that's the idea. That's what they're supposed to be doing. And you see that here as well. I mean, I love this because the meal has come and there's this element of waiting. You're waiting for the Lord to come. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And even in the church service, you're waiting for each other before you begin. It'd be interesting to see how you could honor that in a church service too, where there's very little waiting, come to think of it. But anyway, they're still, they're still waiting um, for their food. And this whole movement from sacrifice to communion is seen very clearly in, in Acts 10. You remember what happens in Acts 10? This is the actual abrogation of the, the food laws. Remember how that happens with Peter? 
Yeah, so there's this vision and this this net. Yeah, this net is let down from heaven, and and, and God tells Paul to. Um, what, boy, Paul is on my brain. Um, he tells Peter to get up and slaughter and eat. So even there, there's the notion of killing, killing it and eating it. Those two things come together. But Peter said, certainly not, Lord, for I've never eaten anything defiled and ritually unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, what God has made clean, you must not consider unclean. And this happened three times. So there's the killing, there's the eating, and there's the abolition of clean and unclean distinctions with respect to food. Now what's the larger significance of that from a Christian perspective? That's verse 14. When Paul, uh, Peter rather, when Peter goes and speaks to Cornelius, this is how he summarizes what happened to him in the vision. So Peter is speaking to Cornelius in his household. He, he continues um, talking with him. He found many people gathered together, and he says to them in verse 28, You know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Yet God has shown me that I should not call any person defiled or unclean. That's very interesting because the only thing he had said before is that the the foods are no longer defiled or unclean. So Peter's automatic assumption is if there are no unclean or defiled foods, that means that there are no unclean or defiled people. The abolition of the food laws leads to an abolition of distinctions. Um... uh, Destruction of the wall that's been erected between the Jews and the Gentiles. So there's sacrifice that leads to communion. And you see that happening even in the abolition of the food laws um, in Acts 10. The food laws pass away so that separation can lead to union. Um, I think I'll, I'll close on this note, which is um, the way in which, uh, maybe we could reflect for just a few minutes on the way in which this communion is established, this communion with the Lord and not demons, this communion with the people of God, Jews and Gentiles alike. It's on the basis of sacrifice, so we move from fruit to bread to, to meat. But um, how is it that it happens by way of eating? And how is this kind of sacred eating different from other sorts of eating? Ordinarily, when you eat something, when you eat normal food, what you eat becomes a part of you. So, um, and this is a point that Leon Cass makes as well. If a, if a lion eats a zebra, um, the zebra becomes a lion. So without, which was a zebra, the exact matter which was a zebra now becomes part of the lion itself. And the differences between them are destroyed and it becomes complete sameness. How is that different from the eating whereby we eat the body and blood of Jesus? There's, there's, there's a difference between regular eating and sacred eating. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the point I wanted to make. You know, usually eating involves the transformation of the other into being just the same. That's how Leon Cass puts it. Or in other words, when you eat, what you eat becomes part of you. But our partaking of Christ incorporates us into His body. 
not the other way around. And that's exactly the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 12. I mean, 1 Corinthians 12 is sort of the follow-up on the Lord's Supper um, discussions in 10 and 11. And he talks about us um, drinking spiritual food and uh, eating spiritual food and drinking spiritual drink and becoming part of the body of Christ. So when we eat the body and blood of Christ, the body and the cup, um, He doesn't become part of us, we become part of Him. That's exactly right. And not only that, we not only become part of Him, we become part of the larger body of Christ, which includes our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, it's, it's a communion, it's a union with differentiation. So it's not, it's not otherness into complete sameness. It's an incorporation of the body which still honors a kind of differentiation, a kind of difference um, there as well. So, I mean, ironically, um, at the end of the day, there is a kind of eating, a kind of food that um, leads to wisdom and that leads to life. In this case, it's uh, a sacrificed wisdom. The tree of wisdom is actually quite different by the end. It's, it's, it's a tree on which the sacrificed word and wisdom of God hangs. Um, and it is a, a fruit and a bread that becomes flesh. And it affects a union so that what we eat doesn't become part of us. We become part of the crucified and the resurrected Lord, which affects our communion with the divine, actually restores us to God's presence in the way that was always in view in the garden and in the wilderness and also affects our union with the human Christ and our sharing with him in his rulership and in his reign. So all the hopes and dreams that you see in the garden and all the hopes and dreams that you see in the wilderness are encompassed but also transcended. It's not just the eating of the fruit. It's not just the eating of the bread. It is partaking of the body and the blood of Christ that gives us the wisdom and gives us the life that God always intended for us in his sovereignty and in his good purposes and plans. It's beautiful, isn't it? Okay, any comments or questions? I feel like we're kind of just on the outskirts of the rich things having to do with the death and resurrection of Jesus and communion. This may be really off topic. Yeah. Studying Psalm 75, and he uses the metaphor of the cup of God's wrath, and that, in studying that, that comes up over and over and over again in Scripture, where you have God's wrath identified as this cup of foaming wine that the wicked will be will drink down to its dregs and be judged, which of course finds fulfillment in Jesus saying, you know, take this cup away from me as the Oh yeah, oh yeah. So I wondered, just thinking about the food analogy, why, I mean, why would God use that metaphor of the cup of food and wine for His bread? I don't know. May not no, no, no. I think that's exactly right. You see it in Habakkuk as well. It's it's very, very prominent um, in the Old Testament. There are there are two possible. Um, dinners or suppers at the end of the Bible in uh, Revelation 19 I think it is you've got the marriage supper of the Lamb and you've got the um, the great banquet of God there are two possibilities you can consume or be consumed and um, so the po- one possibility is that 
you will be at the banquet of the wedding celebration of the Lamb. Which is really interesting because that points to his sacrifice. That, that entire banquet is dependent upon the sacrifice of the Lamb. There's, there's the flesh once again. Or, alternatively, um, you can have all the birds in the air gathering for the great, the great banquet of God. To eat your fill of the flesh of kings, the flesh of generals, the flesh of powerful people, the flesh of horses and those who ride them, and the flesh of all people, both free and slave, and small and great. And so um, there's the covenantal curse coming. So I take it that you can either you can either be consumed by God in His wrath. Um, or he'll allow you to be consumed by the birds of the air, all of which speaks to the same sort of thing. So that it's, it's, it's eating as judgment. Or alternatively, you can wait for God to provide food for you. It goes back to the whole theme of the provision of food. And you can wait for God to provide the food for you that will lead to life. So you can consume God's provision for you, which is ultimately Jesus, in a way that leads to life. Or you can disobey and wait to be consumed, and which is so that ultimately food is either the means is is sort of the means to either covenantal life or the expression of covenantal death. Um, it's supposed to be the other way to look at it: saying either you drink the cup of God's wrath or you accept that Jesus drank it for you. Oh yeah, which is yeah, that's right, that's right. Well, yeah, yeah, which is to say that if um, yeah, Jesus Jesus drinks that cup for you so that you don't have to drink it, so that you can so you can eat the food that leads to life. That's exactly right. Interesting thing is that um, you know there is. We've talked about God provides food, or you know, in the pagan myths, it always had the peop- the uh, the people trying to feed their gods. And interestingly, I mean, there is a sense in which when they offer sacrifices to God in the Old Testament, there's a sense in which he's 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 smelling the sacrifices, and it is a kind of it, it does seem to be a kind of food for God. But even that, in the end, comes back to God's provision of food for His people. So even the one, the one aspect where it looks like you're providing food for God is actually a pointer to the way in which He provides food for you. So you can either wait for God's provision and consume that which He has provided in a way which leads to communion and union and participation in Him, or you can simply wait to be consumed. Um, yeah. But would the ancient pagans sort have seen their appeasement as God of their gods as being sort of a patronage, so that they would, uh, and they would try and appease the harvest god. Mm-hmm. The harvest god would enable them to have a big harvest. Then. Oh sure, sure, sure. So it doesn't seem that different. Well, yeah, except for the fact that there is a kind of propitiation in the ancient world whereby you're trying to appease your god's wrath, but the wrath of the pagan gods is capricious, it's whimsical, it's, it's marked by pride, it's, it's unjust, it's peevish a lot of the time. Um, and the difference is, is that you know, the, the God in the Bible, I, there, is a, there is a wrath of God and it does need to be appeased. And it also needs to be appeased by sacrifice. And the same word can be used, which is propitiation. But in this case, God is justly angry and justly wrathful. 
and there needs and, and the sacrifice is a just requirement the sacrifice of Christ but you're right there is a kind of parallel there yeah, I was meaning more towards the, oh. um, he was suggesting that um, you know in, in the sacrifices uh, the Jews gave to God they were in a sense feeding the Although, I, and people still do this today, actually. But, um, and then you're saying that uh, they were really just returning some of what God had provided to them. Uh, whereas the pagan view is that they were appeasing the gods such that they might have something, and then they were giving their god back some of it in order to repeat repeat this? You see what I'm, what I'm trying to... What I'm trying to pass out the difference between uh, the Jewish sacrifice and the pagan appeasement type thing. And just trying to work out which way is the all of those sacrifices actually point forward to God's provision, interestingly, which he, he actually provides the final sacrifice. So they, they can be... I mean, there's a sense in which when you, whenever you sacrifice a goat or a sheep, it comes from God and he's provided the sacrifice. But on a much, more, a much greater level, God himself becomes a human being and he is himself. He, he provides the sacrifice in, in, in himself. That's the, that's the point I was getting at. Anyway, thank you for your participation. Thank you for your involvement. Let me, um, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we thank you that you have uh, provided for us. Thank you that you um, made great promises to Adam and to Eve in the garden. We thank you for um, the hope of your kingdom coming and fully um, feasting with you. And we thank you that you have fulfilled that um, and provided for that uh, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, dear Lord, that you have broken down the divisions between Jews and Gentiles and that you have already invited us to participate in the great feast. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help us um, to continue to be willing um, to wait. Um, We thank you for the way in which the promises have already been fulfilled, but help us to wait for the final fulfillment of those promises as well. Help us to look with great expectation um, toward the time when our Lord Jesus Christ does come and to look forward to the marriage banquet of the Lamb. And we thank you for his provision on our behalf. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.